1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and my guest today is Andrew P. Kutnick. Uh, he's a researcher studying the influence of nutrition and metabolism on health, disease, and performance at the University of South Florida, Morsani College of Medicine. He works with uh, Dominic D'Agostino, a very highly esteemed um, researcher uh, that is researching uh, cancer and ketosis um, and many other... Uh, Aspects surrounding that. Andrew is currently uh, writing his dissertation on cancer and cachexia, which is uh, muscle wasting that occurs uh, due, due to some cancers and in certain stages of certain cancers. Uh, Andrew originally began his research path at Florida State University in the exercise science area, studying the influence, again, of nutrition, exercise, supplementation, and environmental extremes on health-based outcomes in normal and clinical populations. Uh, from Florida State University, he transitioned to biomedical research within the metabolic medicine lab, again, at University of South Florida, Morrisani College of Medicine, uh, with a focus on studying metabolism and metabolic therapies for health disease and performance, and especially for cancer. Uh, Andrew himself is a type 1 diabetic for over 12 years. So he knows a lot about um, living with type 1, about uh, the metabolic effects of type 1, and possibly how to mitigate them. So this conversation I have with him went so long, <laughs> we had to divide it into two podcasts. This intro will serve as the intro for both podcasts. Uh, the first one is on cancer and cachexia, which again is his dissertation thesis. And the other one is about uh, type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, continuous glucose monitors, uh, managing these conditions and more. So uh, Andrew is only 29 years old, but the amount of knowledge that this guy has, Unbelievable. Uh, We probably could have talked for hours and hours more. We uh, talked for two and a half hours and then uh, offline talked for another 30 minutes. So uh, you're getting the top two and a half hours of what we've spoken about. Again, each podcast is uh, a bit over an hour. But uh, this is, um, you know, I I remember Tim Ferriss referred to uh, interviewing Dominic D'Agostino as a master class on cancer and ketosis. I would say this is of the same caliber, a master class on type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, and also a, a separate master class on cancer and cachexia and uh, metabolic therapies. So listen in, and I'm uh, really glad to have him. Andrew, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely, Richard. I appreciate you having me on here. Yes,
0: yeah, so I know that you're working on your, your master's thesis or your um, your dissertation, I'm sorry, um, and it has to do with uh, cancer and wasting muscle atrophy, uh, I believe called cachexia. So can you give, um, just take like an overview of what, what is that? When does it
2: happen? How does it happen? And then we'll talk more about the, uh, you know, the dissertation. Yeah. So I, uh, first, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here and, and, and talk with you about this. I interestingly got into this, this idea of cancer taxi and first describing that it's kind of this all encompassing dynamic systemic disease. It's actually, I, I would define it as a multifactorial dynamic systemic wasting syndrome. It's has been studied for well over a hundred years and currently has no standard of care. So that introduced an opportunity to try and make a dent on that. this world of, of this specific disease that seems rather difficult to treat. It's a, it, at its foundation, the disease is an atrophy of the skeletal muscle, which is and usually adipose tissue, although not always. You can have scenarios where people's muscles atrophy, but yet they can continue to be overweight, and that's something called sarcopenic obesity. But at its core, it's a loss of functional skeletal muscle tissue, and it's usually accompanied by inflammation. Inflammation is interesting because it can really drive multiple facets of this disease state, including reduced food intake, actually atrophy directly at the skeletal muscle level, uh, the inability to potentially stimulate full anabolic response to things like insulin pathway or IGF pathway. What does that mean, um,
0: stimulate anabolic response? Anabolic is building up. What does it mean?
2: In so yeah, in simpler terms, it's it's the idea of putting building blocks together to build something and then taking building blocks apart to break them apart would be catabolism. So anabolic is kind of the idea of growing and catabolic is the idea of breaking apart. And any idea of skeletal muscle. Stimulate, one of the most powerful stimulants of growth is one is of you know, there's multiple ways to stimulate growth in skeletal muscle. One way to at least trigger that, at least in part, is through insulin signaling, insulin's anabolic uh hormone that facilitates synthesis, I guess, describing it generally. There's obviously much more to that than just describing it like that. But insulin and IGF stimulate similar receptors. And that that receptor downstream of that is something called mTOR. The mTOR complex is something I think most people will associate with something called muscle protein synthesis. It's the idea when people think they're eating, you know, when they, well, when they eat protein, if it, the losing content is sufficiently high, you can trigger the muscle protein synthesis response. So insulin can contribute in part to that role and we, there's some evidence that things like inflammatory, pro-inflammatory markers like TNF-alpha and IL-6, these are these, these things called cytokines, these, are these molecules that are uh, secreted during an inflammatory state can actually inhibit the ability for that anabolic signal to actually stimulate its synthetic response. So as a part of cachexia, inflammation is upregulated very commonly and it is hypothesized that at least in part, these inflammatory signals are inhibiting the synthesis response in the muscle. And that that kind of makes sense because if you're viewing this unique atrophy disease as uh, if you have a tumor present, let's say you have to start with, you know, first you have a tumor when cancer cachexia is present. That tumor is, you can, it's saying it generally, you can describe it as, well, that tumor may be seen as foreign within the body and, and trigger this auto, like auto, immune response towards it, you can have things like acute phase response proteins from the liver be triggered and you have this inflammatory response to try and handle what is seen as this foreign entity, this this tumor. We also know that some tumors actually secrete pro-inflammatory markers, which can further drive the inflammatory environment. Taken together, you have this, this inflammatory cascade that occurs very commonly in this disease that can not only inhibit the ability for the anabolic signal to transpire, but it also can directly drive atrophy. As well. So, this when I talk about the anabolic versus catabolic response, we know that inflammation can can facilitate it on both ends, meaning that it can drive catabolism, but it can also inhibit anabolism. Um, hmm. well What
0: do you think is some of the reasoning behind wasting happening at all, uh, or things like uh, you know tumors secreting cytokines or other materials to right.
2: cause inflammation? What would be the yeah, that's, a, that's a, That is, I think, it, I think it, I, that's a very good question because that actually gets to the foundation of why, why would this even occur? It seems like a maladaptive response, and it certainly is when you view it. You view the atrophy condition as consequential because we know that 20% of all cancer patients will actually die because of this disease, not because of, let's say, metastatic burden or some of the other things that can trigger fatality or mortality in patients with, this, with cancer. So, 20% of all ca- cancer patients will actually die due to this disease, and it certainly affects. Anywhere between 30 and 80% of all cancer patients.
0: How does it, um, you know, not even morbid, but how does it cause someone to pass away? Is it just, does it attack like the muscle of the heart eventually or how does it do it?
2: So it, it so in, it, it, because of your, the atrophy, skeletal muscle plays a really critical role in overall health. So in the absence of muscle, you actually can, it, it's kind of this cascade of multiple things that occur as it becomes more progressive. But overall, muscle, Muscle quantity, but also function, is, is just I guess said broadly, is very important to general health, but it's essential in the context of this disease state. Because when your question before, when you ask, well, why does this even happen? Well, inflammation is is kind of seen as a response to try and handle this this problem in the body, quote unquote, or this foreign entity in the body, which is which is cancer. And the reason you might have that inflammatory response is is an attempt to kind of counteract this this growing entity in the body well inflammation is is just a consequence of that but why inflammation may actually drive catabolism is i guess i this is how i view this problem is that you need to mobilize important metabolic substrates and these interpolytic molecules meaning that they can fit into other metabolic pathways to help facilitate other cells to function appropriately well, when you have an immune response to something like a tumor, you have the need to facilitate and or energize cells like in the immune system to actually have this response. And amino acids play a really important role in the immune system. I'm sure you've heard of glutamine being good for, good for the immune system and whatnot. Well, there's actually some, some truth to that ideology in that amino acids do play an important role in actually helping support the immune system. So when you have this chronic inflammatory response it's not like when you get you actually go and exercise you actually have a mild uh, inflammatory response and that's actually going to be seen as a good thing if your body can sequester that response where in cancer you have this chronic at least in some cancers it's it's particularly more common in the cachexic scenario where you have this chronic inflammation that's transpiring which you don't really turn off the signal you essentially have it on continuously and then this can drive this chronic pro-catabolic and anti-anabolic signal that are happening kind of together, and of course, these combined can at least in part cause part of the problem of cancer detectio. Um, what are what are some of the cancers in which this
0: happens, and does it seem to have a tipping point and happen suddenly, or is it always there? It just doesn't uh, manifest until later.
2: So but it's specific to certain cancer types, it is more common in certain cancers than other lung, pancreas, um, to name a, a colon cancer. These are ones that are more it's more commonly seen. However, when you start looking at the data, and this is actually something that is the, a large part where I spent the first three years of my work is based on that. that fundamental question, which was how do we find a model that actually replicates what is common in the disease to try and actually treat it? And these are common types of akexia cancer types, lung, colon, pancreas, and there's others where they're at higher proportions. those being some of the main ones. Well, it's interesting because when you start looking at all cancer patients, 30% of all cancer patients have cachexia, and that's usually probably driven by the more the, the type of cancers that would actually be more cachexic in nature. However, when you actually get into the metabolic or the metastatic stage, the advanced stage of cancer, you can have upwards of 80% of all cancer patients experiencing this cachexic disease. And there might be something very unique to that metastatic process that is driving that. But to answer your original question, yes, there are certain types of cancers that are more prone to cachexia, but when you start looking in the advanced metastatic stage, it's actually extremely common, more so common than it is uncommon for a patient with cancer in the metastatic scenario to have cachexia. Now, there's a whole host of rationale why that might be that might be independent of the cancer type at all, but there's something unique about the metastatic scenario that seems to be driving higher percentages, or it has something to do with the advanced scenario where someone would even be advanced. You know, they're further along in their treatment regimens, they would further along in the disease that would be driving that. You asked about the tipping point, the, t- the mm-hmm. time point at which this occurs. And it really seems like in two thousand eleven Kevin tyron really wrote was kind of a pioneer in the field and actually ended up passing away um a few years ago and he He was one of the most prolific writers and researchers in this field for a long time and he primary authored a consensus paper in two thousand eleven really describing what this what they felt was defining of this disease and and this kind of gets to your question of of when does this occur. Because they felt that it was this multi-phase or multi-step process where you have three phases, which is called pre-cachexia, and refractory cachexia. Now, pre is actually defined as about weight loss less than or equal to 5% of their body weight. They also probably have anorexia as well, so reduced food intake. And they also have some metabolic changes that are starting to be observed. Then when you transition over, you have this state called cachexia, which is where you have greater than 5% of your weight loss or a BMI of less than 20% with weight loss of greater than 2%, so double marker there. Or they have something called sarcopenia, which is a, a defining state of atrophy with age and weight loss greater than 2%. But that is not ju- not just weight loss, of course, it's also a reduced food intake and or anorexia and this systemic inflammation that I was describing is very commonly seen and these patients. Now, when you have that stage, you are in the cachexic scenario. You are now dealing with the disease, whereas when you're in pre-cachexia, you start accumulating the symptoms that will then lead you into this scenario, and then you get into a stage called refractory cachexia. Now, by definition, this means you're refractory to anti-neoplastic treatments or anti-cancer treatments, and this is essentially just defined as variable amounts of weight loss, but certainly greater than 5%. And essentially, you're not, you're you're not responsive to treatment. And it's generally believed that you're not going to be able to recover from this scenario. Mm. So in, in one word, I would say it's progressive. It's progressive disease over time, there isn't really like a just a total drop off, because of the way this works as well. You're accumulating all these, these dynamic multifaceted problems, like inflammation being a large part of that, But that's certainly not Even it, I mean, we we talked about inflammation being one of them, but you also have anorexia. You have metabolic changes that are occurring, uh, more defined as metabolic derangement. You can have low hormonal levels or said differently, hypogonadism, anemia. Ultimately, all this is is driving is is tissue wasting, fatigue, reduced capabilities as a a general human being. And this can be seen through a number of biomarkers. But to, to address your question, it is a very progressive disease that affects the whole entire systemic systemic scenario, the whole physiology of the, of the patient that ultimately manifests in a whole host of dynamic changes that really drives about a fifth of all the mortalities in cancer, but also uh, affects the ability to even treat the cancer in the first place because of the muscle mass being reduced. That reduces the ability of the patient to even respond and or tolerate or receive these anti-neoplastic treatments that are currently seen as the standard of care. Cancer. And unfortunately, it just, this is just the state of where we're at right now. Many of the standard of care treatments also drive atrophy. So you, you have a scenario where many of the treatments to try and get rid of the cause of cachexia in the first place may actually be facilitating cachexia to transpire. And it really is a dynamic scenario. And as I mentioned, it's, it, I guess because of how dynamic, how much is going on with this scenario, it's very multifaceted, but it's not surprising that we do not have a standard of care for this scenario currently. And it, and a lot of that could be argued because most of what's looked at is kind of monotherapies uh, for this disease state. And with so much going on and, and such a systemic, difficult disease to handle, one thing will probably not be the end-all, be-all treatment. It, it will likely be a combination of treatments um, addressing multiple facets of lifestyle, but also multiple pharmacological and probably, I would argue, nutritional approaches to address this problem. And, and your approach has
0: been the nutritional approach to, let's take exogenous ketones or have a ketogenic
2: diet to see how that affects the uh, KHK So I'm I'm interested in that yes because we you know there's always been talk about the anti catabolic effects of of ketone bodies. I mean well back all the way back to some of the original work that probably spurred most of this conversation was George Cahill. He did a number of a, a, a whole his whole career um, was essentially. He was at John Hopkins and Harvard. His whole career was essentially looking at what happens in fasting with ketone bodies. And one of the unique discoveries that is related to what we're talking about here in the skeletal muscle is they used to use a marker called blood urea nitrogen. Now, nitrogen can be a byproduct of protein breakdown. So in these days, this is the common marker looked at to kind of assess at least in the best way possible the surrogate marker, so to speak, of breakdown of the skeletal muscle tissue. And what he found many years back is that when you're fasting, you have a rapid wasting that occurs in the skeletal muscle and also in adipose tissue, that's not surprising. You reduce your calories, you reduce the tissue in your body to mobilize it, to utilize those stored tissues for allowing for vital tissues to function. That makes sense. That's a great evolutionary response we have available to us. But in the when you fast... Obviously, you're breaking down these, these tissues that might be important for other reasons like the skeletal muscle. You wouldn't want to lose it completely. It allows for mobility. The amino acids are, can be used to drive um, other processes, so it's just an important tissue to have. But what he found is that when ketone bodies became significantly elevated in the context of fasting, that the amount of blood urea and nitrogen dramatically reduced. Um, and you almost see this like a linear response from the ketone body elevating to the decrease in blood sugar nitrogen. That kind of spurred the conversation of viewing this, these molecules as potential anti-catabolic molecules. Well, there was follow-up work to that um, by other people like Sherwin um, in the 1970s, and a whole host of very interesting papers that you really can kind of only get unless someone uploaded the PDF online or you actually, for me, I actually had to go over to Schimberg Library over at USF and photocopy Damn near all of these studies because they're really not readily available. And it was very fascinating to see the type of work they were doing. They were doing IV infusion of ketone bodies all the all the way back in the seventies. Oh wow! Because of the yeah, because it was very fascinating and all the way back to that time frame because there was interest at this period of time about the possibility of these molecules actually inhibiting, inhibiting catabolism. catabolism. Um, and I would argue that Cahill really spurred a lot of that conversation. And what was interesting is Sherwin particularly. Ivy infused it into patients and found, you know, not, he was just one of many scenarios. They've also looked at ketone bodies and their correlation to patients in the septic scenario or in the, uh, after a major surgery or emergency emergency patients who come in, just looking at how ketone bodies uh, correlate with the blood urea nitrogen uh, count. What they kind of consistently seen is that ketone bodies seem to reduce this surrogate marker of muscle protein breakdown. And kind of fast forwarding a little bit to the 1988 study by Nair N-A-R, if anyone's interested in looking at that, there was some – because a lot of the research on that kind of stopped at, in the 1980s. Uh, it kind of hit a, a deadpan at that point. Now, I don't really know why that is. I can speculate as to why that is. But in general, a lot of these studies were utilizing ketone bodies as, you know, ion infusion or – looking at it in the context of when they're elevated in pathological scenarios. But well, what what's yeah. the
0: question here? Why would, yes. if you're fasting and you have any amounts of adipose tissue, why would skeletal muscle be cannibalized or catabolized? Why wouldn't, you know, all the adipose tissue first be, uh, be used as energy.
2: So that's, so yeah, so you bring up a, a good point. So, in the normal healthy response to a, let's say, fasting scenario or, uh, as a side note, carbohydrate restriction, adipose tissue over time becomes a preferential fuel that can then be used as uh, kind of a, a high percentage of the, the nutrients, more so than it was prior. And some of those nutrients can then be utilized as ketone bodies because your brain can't readily utilize long-chain fatty acids as fuel. And or the, and long-chain fatty acids in short are most of what comes – in, through your mouth as fuel as food if you're on, let's say, a low-carbohydrate diet or in most, most fat sources that you consume generally if you are on a low-carbohydrate diet or not. And actually, the adipose tissue, when it's catabolized can also turn into long-chain fatty acids. And these don't cross the blood-brain barrier quite readily. As a consequence, the liver has this adaptive mechanism to overcome that because, of course, we you're on a diet like a low-carbohydrate diet or if you're fasting because you're re- your overall reduction of, of energy substrates in the form of glucose because glucose being a primary source for the brain um, aren't readily available fuels for... Glucose is a readily available fuel for the brain, but long-chain fatty acids can't cross the blood-brain barrier effectively or efficiently. As a consequence, ketone bodies in the context of fasting would upregulate and then allow for that to be a, a supplementary fuel when glucose is no longer uh, sufficient to retain the energetic state of the brain. But you bring this, you brought up a, a question. So I say that first because you ask why, why wouldn't the adipose tissue just be used as the primary fuel source? Well it is, but the problem is that in these unique pathological scenarios where like, let's say inflammation is extremely high, inflammation can also drive the efflux or the, um, the movement of amino acids from the skeletal muscle compartment out to drive that or to, to facilitate part of the immune system response. So hmm. while fat is a very important fuel, you also need to fuel and or use intermediary metabolites, um, something called anaplerosis, where a molecule or metabolite goes into an anabolic path, or not anabolic pathway, but any metabolic pathway. So they're used as energetic fuels, but also anaplerotic molecules. For the immune system. So, when you have these unique scenarios where inflammation is upregulated in the context specifically of cachexia, or let's say you had an an infection, then you have an upregulation of deflux amino acids from the the skeletal muscle, of which doesn't replicate what happens in fasting. Whereas fasting, it would just become progressively disproportionately the adipose tissue that would be used as fuel. But the skeletal muscle uh, during an inflammatory or a pathological scenario, like inflammation or like cancer cachexia, would actually cause the skeletal muscle to be disproportionate, not disproportionately compared to fat, but a large, larger portion of the protein and amino acid storage would now be broken down and be used to facilitate some of these other important processes in the body. So if you think about it, like amino acids or the skeletal muscle is really important, but if you have an acute infection, where your life is actually potentially on the line right here, right now, doesn't it make sense to do whatever it takes to combat this inflammatory response? Because right. Right. yes, right. So it it's a, it takes precedence. So you just you do what you can to mobilize any nutrient or anaplerotic metabolite you can to facilitate a appropriate as much as you can response to these really adverse outcome or not adverse outcomes, but the adverse stimuli for for or for, for um, adverse outcomes like an infection. Um and a good a good example of that is something called lipopolysaccharide. It's a it's an inflammatory, it's actually if you there's there's two types of bacteria generally speaking, gram positive and gram negative. And a part of gram negative bacteria wall is this 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 structure called lipopolysaccharide. And they've done a lot of experiments where they actually inject lipopolysaccharides into, let's say, they've done it actually in patients, but they've also done it in in a lot of experiments. I've actually done this quite a few times here at USF as a part of my project to drive inflammation. And a very characteristic common response to this infection response is atrophy of the skeletal muscle. You also have that in the the adipose tissue as well. But these are are very common characteristic responses of inflammation-based atrophy, where skeletal muscle is disproportionately utilized. To facilitate the response to these adverse um, triggers or adverse well, physiological you, environments. Question: you, you would think that this
0: would be a last resort, you know, because it's such a detrimental thing to the the organism.
2: When you say Is last it, resort, are you referring to atrophy?
0: Yeah, uh, atrophy. Right. Uh, cannibalizing the skeletal muscles seems like it would be a last resort. It seems like there'd be a, another, you know, for lack of a scientific word, bad, a bag of tricks or other mechanisms. And this would be the last thing that would happen because it's, it seems to be very detrimental.
2: It is very detrimental, but also realize that at least in, in this scenario, patient will not walk in to a clinic and they'll be, you know, waste away instantaneously. We're talking about a multi-month response that is occurring. So yes, it doesn't make sense necessarily at face value that you'd want to catalyze skeletal muscle initially for to facilitate these responses. But typically in most scenarios where you have an infection, because the body, I guess, overarchingly, I think I would argue, use most of these responses like an infection. We actually wrote a paper on this in Trends in Endocrinology and Metabolism with Dominic D'Agostino and Brendan Egan about the idea of these infection-based atrophies. The Inflammation is actually a part of many of the atrophy scenarios that we commonly see, even even things you wouldn't expect to be driving inflammation like disuse atrophy or denervation where you have loss of your nerve function or you actually just have general disuse and you have atrophy, you actually see elevated inflammation in the environment. So inflammation is like a, a, an underlying um, current in many of these atrophy-based diseases, but many of them are not super rapid. Many of them are happen over a long period of time. But particularly in the infection scenario, it's something that happens rather rapidly when you have a true Robust infection. So, in that environment, in the in, in the environment of something that can threaten your life right now, um, if you have an infection like sepsis, you could die within three days if you don't get it treated. So, that makes sense to do whatever you can to combat that adverse infl- or at ad- that adverse infection scenario. But when you have these subtle levels of inflammation that are occurring over a chronic period of time, your body doesn't necessarily view that differently. It's still an important because inflammation would trigger, I would argue, if, it, if your body views it like infection, like I, I tend to believe, at least my current thinking, that that might be part of how your body views it. Then y- you could also argue your body sees this as a, as a vital response to maintain the health of the organism over maybe an acute adverse response of not handling the uh, evil, even subtle inflammation. But in the case of like a sepsis scenario, very robust inflammation. So Yes, you would think that that wouldn't be the case, but because I would argue the body may see these as as a, a critical response to maintaining health right now, it is something that it will do whatever it can to maintain survival. And you see that survival of the organism, both from a psychological perspective, but also from a physiological scenario, your body pretty much does whatever it can to survive. I mean, that's one of its most prominent evolutionary adapted tools is to, even in one of those, you know, even the most adverse of scenarios- your body will be able to cancer.
0: Right. This seems to happen just with, you know, people that are just, you know, uh significantly overweight over a period of time. You know, you don't see them with tons of skeletal muscle, you see them with more adipose that grows over time. And the skeletal muscle, I guess, you know, for this reason it's because of disuse it tends to uh to go away. And they just I wonder if it's because of the inflammation of the fat or if it's just because of disuse and I wonder how that relates to this
2: well, so, yeah, disuse atrophy is a very um, – we know that disuse drives uh, reduction of, of at least skeletal muscle size. There's really good evidence for that, and um, that makes sense. Your body's just adapting to a reduced stimulus present. I mean, this even happens to astronauts um, who are out in outer space who aren't don't have the same chronic – burden of gravity all the time. So they also see an atrophy of the skeletal muscle. But in the context of obesity, and this is, you know, generally speaking, the those who are maybe a weight or obese may have, at least there's some evidence for it, uh, and, uh, some elevation and in inflammation within the, the body, which can be, I guess you could argue, at least based on how we know the mechanisms work in atrophy, um, from the inflammatory perspective, that this would at least in part contribute to that problem, whereas disuse... Inflammation is a part of it, but I would also argue even more important, at least in that particular atrophy scenario, uh, it just, the, the, the reduction of mechanical loading on the skeletal muscle is a very powerful atrophy stimulus, um, at least in the context of disuse. So obesity, you probably have a, a, a combination of problems where many, not saying all individuals who are obese do this, that's certainly not the case, but you may have reduced activity, um, facilitating part, in part obesity, not obviously the only thing that's doing that. And that, combined with some of the adverse physiology that occurs with obesity, may kind of hit the skeletal muscle um, from multiple angles, and uh, maybe not allow for retention of skeletal muscle or at least optimal skeletal muscle uh, that you'd hope for. I guess I realize it's more common than than we would think
0: that skeletal muscle will be would be well would fall into disuse or would be uh,
2: cannibalized. So it happens in various scenarios: disuse, like you said, lack of mechanical load, etc. Right. And I've talked to um, uh, Brendan Egan. He is a real expert on sarcopenia. He's in, he's in Dublin. I communicate a lot with him on this scenario. And if you talk about sarcopenia, which is aging, uh, aging atrophy with aging, you, it, it, he he argues, and I, I've heard other people argue this as well. And it makes sense that you really don't have like, let's say it is kind of somewhat, maybe a, a slow reduction in muscle size, but you have these drop-offs and periods where people actually, let's say, have an injury. Let's say that someone tripped and they, you know, hurt their hip or hurt their knee and they're not able to be as active. And they have these really dramatic reductions in their skeletal muscle tissue. I and mean, then accumulating that over multiple years, you have these events that they pile up. It's really hard to get the skeletal muscle back once it's gone, especially in the aging population. So you do have these really dramatic drop-offs and those are stimulated by disuse um, in that particular scenario where it's not just seen as like, oh, okay, well they just atrophy really slowly. Although I did, you know, I did argue that atrophy can occur progressively, and it is certainly progressive. But you have these salient moments of reduced skeletal muscle mass that occur with aging, and and, and which is defined as sarcopenia, that are kind of clear drop-offs that occur at periodic moments, usually driven by some type of stimulus that caused issues, like a injury or like, well, I guess injury would be the most prominent example.
0: Well, I kind of took you off course so back to um, the ketones and cakexia. You were talking about George Cahill and how he found that it may be protective. Uh, what, what did you find specifically with your uh, your models and your applications?
2: So, we, so to kind of progress that story forward, I kind of talked about Cahill and I talked about some of the infusion studies that occurred and then kind of the lack of studies that occurred beyond the 1980s. But there was a just to kind of finish out the the history part of this, this is about in 1988, Nair did a study looking at ketone infusion and the post-absorptive phase in the context of food. And this study showed that there was an elevation in fractional, fractional muscle protein synthesis. So while most of the historic work had looked at the anti-catabolic effects, this showed that in the presence of food, in the post-absorptive phase, so post-meal, that there might actually be a facilitation of an anabolic response or an augmentation of the anabolic response. And really, most of the work has dropped off from that point forward and there was just this general thought that, okay, that there might be a retention of skeletal muscle with, let's say, a ketogenic diet or a low-carbohydrate diet. But there's been a kind of Mm an interesting milieu of work that's kind of arisen recently that kind of further supports this idea, the anti-catabolic response being one of the more prominent aspects of ketone bodies. and. There's really a number of ways in which ketone bodies work to kind of summarize it all together. There's good work showing that there's a decrease in nitrogen excretion. There's a decrease in, in glycolysis and amino uh, amino acid fl- efflux from the skeletal muscles such as alanine. There's actually some studies showing that elevations of ketone bodies can actually decrease the efflux of alanine from the skeletal muscles sixfold. There's a reduction of lactate in some studies, but this is in the post-exercise state, so there's some questionability to translation of that work. To the general scenario of atrophy, um, there's also a change in leucine metabolism. So we know that leucine oxidation, according to a number of studies, can actually reduce, meaning that you have higher leucine levels circulating, which may help facilitate part of the anabolic response because we know that leucine triggers mTOR in the skeletal muscle. Uh, there's a number of studies that kind of illustrate through multiple angles by which this ketone bodies may actually be either anti-catabolic or maybe pro-synthetic post, you know, in the at least prosynthetic in the context of post absorptive or with a meal. Uh, but there's also a number of studies that kind of have looked at in the cancer scenario where the ketogenic diet was able to attenuate atrophy with, with cancer cachexia models. And this was shown in, I think one lung cancer model, two colon cancer models and one pancreatic model. Um, the pancreatic model um, was in 2014. Some of the colon work was by Tisdale and Fearon, one of the, the leaders in this field some time back. But nonetheless, there was some evidence in, in these modeling systems that it could, it could cause an anti-catexic response. Um, but there was this really interesting paper uh, that came out in 2018 by Thompson. I forget where it was. It might have been Hungary. I, you know, I forget where it was, but it is really interesting experiment where they actually IV infused patients with endotoxin or lipopolysaccharide. Endotoxin is another word for lipopolysaccharide. They did it at very, very sublethal dosages, of course. They Hmm. never get approval to do a study like this if there was anywhere close to lethal dosages, but you did sublethal dosages, and even that sublethal dose of LPS, back to our previous conversation of how powerful inflammation can be, um, actually caused a very clear amino acid catabolism that was occurring in the skeletal muscle. And they did this through this unique tracer-based analysis where they actually... Are able to track the amount of amino acid entering and/or leaving the skeletal muscle, and use that as a marker for the amount of um, synthesis or and/or catabolism that was occurring. And what they found, of course, is that when you had these subjects with endotoxin, they had a, a you know uptick of of flux. But what they found is they actually iv infused patients with a racemic BHB compound around two to three millimolar. Forget the exact dose. Might have been between two and four actually, but they got them between two and four millimolar and they were able to significantly reduce the catabolic efflux of amino acids. In fact, so much so that when they did a hyperinsulinemia response after the fact, um, as a comparative, both in the context of ketones and also in the context without ketones, and found that the ketone bodies, if you were to compare the work where they did fasting plus ketone bodies compared to the hyperinsulinemia and hyperglucose portion of the study, If you compare them quantitatively, you see that there's actually a more robust anti-catabolic response in this study in the context of lipopolysaccharide-induced atrophy, that it actually had a more anti-catabolic action, again, in the context of the study, than hyperinsulinemia and glucose did. So that's kind of a unique and, I would argue, very interesting response that kind of may change the, the, in part, is is challenging some of the dogma uh, surrounding the Anabolic response, animal, or the prominent anabolic, or the more important um, effect of insulin in the context of atrophy. Now, you know this wasn't a direct comparison, but if you quantitatively compare them, you can see this this quantitative difference. And when you look at ketone bodies and, and comparatively, comparably, the, the, how robust the anti catabolic response was, because they do this this net protein balance, which is the net. Response of the catabolism versus the anabolism, and you compare that from the ketones to the hyperinsulinemia, you see that this is a that this effect was very prominent, and that the anti-catabolic response drove most of the net protein balance to be favorable in the PHB group compared to the other groups. So this was a very interesting and powerful study, and part of what we wrote about in our two thousand uh, our paper that just came out in two thousand nineteen in Trends in Endocrinology and Metabolism, highlighting that study and discussing some of the positive Indication that this gives towards the potential hope that ketone bodies may have in attribute-based scenarios, particularly specifically ones that are driven by inflammation. Because while I espouse all the potential benefits of ketone bodies, there's also the possibility that I had mentioned previously in the podcast that some of these inflammatory markers may blunt the anabolic response. And what we also have learned over the last for, well, since 2013, a science paper came out in Eric Burden's group um, showing, you know, HDAC inhibition and uh, some of the signaling effects there and then some of the anti inflammatory Sorry, so That was a Ross-based um, HDAC inhibition signaling effect of T10 bodies that was learned about. Then there was a nature medicine paper that um, was done by Deep physics group that Dom also helped with using esters, the diester that we specifically observed here in the lab or used here in the lab can inhibit MLRP3 inflammasome, there's a lot of, there's a growing number of evidence that there's a potential anti-inflammatory response and antioxidant response that seem to be associated with the effect. this, these unique effects of ketone bodies because what's interesting. Quick
0: quick question here, is this because of uh, diet or is this because of exogenous ketones? Well, these Yes, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, and I was also going to ask you: Are there clinical trials, or at least anecdotal evidence from cancer patients that have staved off cachexia, or are there clinical trials where they're doing this? And again, if so, is
2: it diet and exogenous ketones, or one or the other? So, it, so first, your question about you know is this diet or exogenous ketones? Well, these studies the 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 paper in 2013 in Science uh, with Eric Burns' group that was the administration of a, a ketone bodies on different tissues in cell culture, but then they also did a ketogenic diet simultaneously and showed that it replicated that uh, antioxidant response. So I think there was in kidney cells originally, but that work has then been replicated using a ketogenic diet and other rodent models from a study out of, totally going to butcher this, I'm probably going to piss him off, is Morgan or, no, Roberts, Roberts et al., 2017, and then Newman et al., 2017, both published studies using the ketogenic diet showing that this, this antioxidant response associated with these molecules. So it seems consistent with the diet and or, but it seems that the work from Aaron Ferdinand's group seems to indicate that this is because of ketones specifically. Now the NLRP3 inflammasome that also seems to be because of ketone bodies as well, because it was an exogenous ester that was combined with a normal standard diet that drove this effect. And when you look at this, though this, a lot of the work out of that paper, the nature medicine paper, which is YUM, Y-O-U-M, at al., they actually gave ketones or BHP on top of like inflammatory responses such as LPS and were able to show the anti-inflammatory response with these ketone bodies in cell culture, but also use an exogenous ketone in these rodent models. And keep in mind, I am speaking on the rodent level, which then gets to your next. So uh, yes, it is seems to be driven, at least as nlrp 3 inflammatory response, but also antioxidant response seems to be because of the ketone bodies being present. The ketone bodies themselves seem to be driving these responses. But when you talk about patients, patients, there's a a real desire to have more information on the patient level because a lot of the work, because this is such a fastly emergent field with so much interest, a lot of the work has been experimental preclinical models, uh, rodent-based studies, and there's a real desire to translate these and understand how much of this translates to the human scenario, it does make sense that it should translate based on how we would expect these these rodent models to, to, at least in part, replicate some of what we see in humans. But of course, there's no guarantee of that, and we would need certainly more studies. I know that the physics group who did the Nature Medicine paper using the, the ketone diester, they, I believe, are doing a trial right now looking at patients who have inflammation-induced gout and I, I believe that's underway. I, I, so I think we'll get more answers to this in the human context pretty soon. I mean, if you like, look at low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diets on, on like it's certainly an explosion. And I'd actually encourage a lot of people, if they're interested in this, if you actually go to PubMed and just type in the ketogenic diet, and it, it only searches for that, you can actually look at the right-hand side of PubMed and see just the uptick in interest Uptick uh, in interest, but the uptick in the amount of published studies on this topic that have occurred um, for the last twenty years—it's just kind of blown up. And of course, consequently, public interest has also emerged along with that. So, um, and you can see that if you if you just quantitatively looking at Google Trends and searches for things like ketogenic diet. Um,
0: so, so I guess to it'll, make a bad joke, uh, interest in ketogenic diets is being upregulated. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Very, very great way of scientifically putting that, sir. <laughs> very, very good. So uh, was
0: there a conclusion to your uh, your research and your dissertation, or you know, how far did you take it? You know, so, you.
2: so I had to be kind of cautious in how I speak about this because the work is certainly not published yet. But okay. I would just say there's a lot. I, so I can't really speak too much on that other than what has already been done because this work is still underway. Um, but... I would just say that it, there's a lot of reasons to believe it, it could work, and it'll be it'll be interesting to see um, the work when it finally does come out. I think that people will find it very interesting to kind of skirt around your question altogether, but um, can't speak about that work so much yet, other than to say okay. we are currently exploring it, and we're kind of have gone beyond just the KXA scenario. We, we are actually starting to look in other forms of atrophy um, as well. So um, that work will be emergent, and I encourage everyone to stay tuned for when it does come out, because we certainly will be excited to share it. When do you think that'll be? Do you
0: can you control that, or you don't know?
2: Uh, unfortunately, I have very little control over that. How this the process typically works is we still have some more experiments that I want to do to kind of further evaluate the efficacy or lack thereof of these molecules in atrophy based scenarios, but. Typically, you know, when you still have experiments to go and then when you put together the paper and then you submit it, you hope that you get a relatively quick response, which isn't always the case. Uh, But then you also need peer review. And and because, you know, there's a whole controversy around the peer review process. But it's very it's not usually, I guess, described as the quickest process. Um, So it could take some time. Um, Unfortunately, it it often does. But uh, we're also in the process of trying to further describe the what we view as a Describe more of this, the context of the skeletal muscle effects of these, these molecules that probably may even come sooner than that. So it is an area of obvious current interest in our group, but there are other people as well that are interested in some of these these projects. And if some people are interested to read on this, I would encourage them to look at the 2019 paper we have, but also look at some of the work from uh, Roberts et al. in 2017, look at the ketogenic diet and mice started midway, and the mice's life. Look at some of what they describe in the skeletal muscle. And There's a host of literature out there to whet someone's appetite on this topic that is
0: is. already out there. And and when there's no standard of care, do you think there'll be an easier adoption of this or is there more freedom in the medical community to try things?
2: Freedom? Definitely not. (laughs) But there's a good reason behind that. Uh, You don't want to just willy-nilly throw these into anyone because there there could be consequences of that. While there are espoused benefits to these strategies, you really want to see that they have good logistical rationale prior to putting them in patients. There are keynote examples in medical literature where things were done too quickly and they didn't always work out so well. So there's a reason why the clinical trial process takes as long as it does, as arduous as it is, but it's ultimately to attempt to avoid unexpected adverse outcomes occurring too quickly because it has happened enough times to where it is why it has happened enough time to facilitate the rationale why you want a three-stage clinical evaluation. Unfortunately, those are extremely expensive, extremely slow and take a very long time. So in a lot of scenarios, I mean, I have a disease called type 1 diabetes that I manage chronically. If I'm a type 1 diabetic and I'm looking for strategies to improve my outcomes, you know, I'm looking right here right now for, for something to fix or and or improve my scenario. Right. So yeah. I understand where the patient may want to find something here and now, but unfortunately it's really hard to give any good concrete scientifically based evidence because there is always the possibility that things don't work the same way in humans as they do in some of these cell culture models or in rodent models. So it's really hard to say whether it will or won't work until you really do have randomized clinical trials. So makes um, sense. Yeah. We're hopeful. We're definitely hopeful. There's a huge interest in this, and I, that means that this will probably hit the clinical trials circuit, so to speak, sooner rather than later, and we know that there are, are clinical trials underway. for things like we also study cancer here. I studied cancer, actually, the downstream consequences of cancer, but we've, we've studied cancer for, man, almost 10 years now, and, so, and there's a, lot, a whole host of studies now in clinical trials for cancer. So, you know, these are coming, and usually when the science accumulates that that justifies taking it to that next step and i i would argue that most people in the medical community are eager to try and find solutions to most of these diseases so ultimately that is the, the end goal is to get to the patient scenario and improve their outcomes. so i think we'll see it it just might be as quick as some people hope